three different stories, all looking at different characters in the book of Judges. And many of you might be wondering, what in the world is going on with Ehud? We're going to get into it. You guys ready to go there with me? Well, I hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving, uh, spending time with friends and family, eating food, going back for seconds and thirds, letting the food settle, going back for dessert. I know that's one of my favorite parts of Thanksgiving is the food. But another one of my favorite parts about Thanksgiving is the opportunity that creates uh, to spend time with people over table fellowship, oftentimes hours at a time, and you get to learn more things about people that oftentimes you think you knew pretty well. Where This might be something that's revealed about the person that causes you to know them more deeply or to even grow your love for that individual. And this might be as trivial as learning that someone that you thought loved grapefruit actually doesn't love grapefruit. It might be as deep and uh, meaningful as learning about a, a past abortion that someone tells you about that they're working through or abuse in, in a relationship from a previous husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or uh, abuse growing up in your childhood. Whatever the case may be, this is, this is a time that I enjoy because as we spend time and we think and we uh, enjoy one another's presence, oftentimes we find out new things about one another. And I had a similar experience to that happen this week as I was studying through Judges 3. I've read Judges 3 and studied it over again this week, and what I love about the scriptures is that you can read a passage 10 times, and on the 11th, God will show you something in the passage that you hadn't seen before, and I'm excited to share with you this morning uh, what, what God showed me from Judges 3. If you haven't yet, uh, turn with me to Judges chapter 3, the passage our friend Peter just read for us. And before we jump into the text, let me just remind you where we've been up to this point. Two weeks ago, Will introduced our study looking at the book of Judges. He laid the foundation and, and laid out the model and the structure in which the way we're going to work through this study by looking at three questions. Right, what does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? Uh, how does this story connect with the Bible's larger story, our meta-narrative? And lastly, what exhortation or admonition, what warning or call, to, what is this passage calling us to do? Uh, from the story. And, and we're going to answer, seek to answer those three questions each week. And Judges chapter one was a historical introduction. It was the first half of the introduction. And Judges chapter two was the second half of the introduction. It provided a little more theological commentary. And last week we saw the reality of the, the cycle that's introduced in the book of Judges the cycle of the people of God's sin, they're oppressed. They, from this point of oppression, they cry out to God. God raises up a deliverer, God saves them, they have peace. And then they sin again. And this cycle continues all throughout the book. And it says that from each generation, it got worse and worse. So what we see in the book of Judges is a, a downward spiral that happens throughout the book. But in Judges 3, we get the first judges are introduced to us. The first three out of the 12. A guy named Othniel, a guy named Ehud, and a guy named Shamgar. So let's jump into the text. Judges 3, chapter 1. This transition section here from Judges 3, 1, all the way through verse 6, concludes that introduction, and it sets the scene for the judge Othniel. It says that uh, God left these people in order to teach them war. These, this generation of people that had grown up that hadn't known war, and that's, that verse there in verse 2 is important. We'll come back to that. The other verse that's important in this passage is verse 6. 
that the daughters took wives for themselves and they, they gave their own daughters to their sons who serve their gods. This was a direct contradiction to God's word about intermarriage. This led to idolatry and leaving that exclusive relationship that God wanted with his people. And that background information provides and sets the scene for this guy named Othniel. So Judges 3.7, it introduces this key phrase, this key sentence that we'll see throughout the book. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God. They served the Baals and the Asheroth. These were the Canaanite gods at that time. They worshipped other gods. And it says, therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Last week we saw this truth. We built it out a little more that since God is both just and loving, he gets angry at sin. Uh, One commentator, Dale Davis, said it like this. Yahweh's wrath, the Lord's wrath, is the heat of his jealous love by which he refuses to let go of his people. He refuses to allow his people to remain comfortable in sin. And God's steadfast love, he pursues them in their iniquity, and it's not above inflicting misery in order to awaken them. So because God is loving, in other words, because he's loving, because he loves his people, he will at times cause infliction and pain to his people in order to return them to himself. And that's what we see in the book of Judges. The anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel. He sells them into the hand of this guy named Cushan Rithatheum. What a name. The name means double, dark, wicked, Canaan. It, it's, it can be a literary device that, that highlights the contrast of the wickedness versus uh, the salvation that God brings through this guy named Othniel. And notice how God is the main character all throughout the story. It says, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to the war, and the Lord gave king of Mesopotamia into his hand. You notice how God is doing all the work here. God is raising up Othniel. God is hearing the cries of his people. God is is delivering them through Othniel. He's sending his spirit upon Othniel, and he's bringing rest to the land, and says they have rest there for 40 years. So here comes this Othniel, the first cycle, the living example that we see in Judges is this guy, Othniel. Sin, oppression, they cry out. Here comes Othniel. Othniel comes to the rescue, saves the people, and then Othniel dies. And guess what happens in the next verse? We're back to the beginning of that cycle. Verse 12, the people of Israel again and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice again the sovereignty of God that's highlighted all throughout Judges. It's the key theme, and we see it here. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened this guy named Eglon, the king of Moab. So in Othniel, we see God's sovereignty in saving the people. In Ehud, we see God strengthening their enemies. And this is to cause oppression and punishment and uh, defeat of his own people. So we see the sovereignty of God here. He's strengthening his enemies, ultimately, though, to show how much mightier and greater God is. But God is, is active. He's, the, he's every part of this story in Eglon. And before we get into the book, to the story of Ehud, maybe you're here this morning, and the first time you've heard this story was when Peter read it for you, and you're thinking, what in the world is this story doing in the Bible? Right? Maybe everyone had heard the story of Ehud before. But there's a lot that goes down in this story. This, sometimes I think we can think about Ehud as like that crazy uncle or family member that, 
you know, we might see them at holidays, but we don't really want to have them around. Like, if we could, we'd like to set them off in the corner, and, you know, I don't really want to deal with you. I'll keep you at distance, right? Because what do we learn from Ehud here? I mean, God is, like, assassinating someone through deception and trickery. <laughs> the details that are shared here, I mean, it, it's graphic. And regardless of what kind of emotion came up, whether it was disgust or embarrassment or confusion, the story is told, I think, in a humorous way. The story is, is meant to be satire. It's meant to kind of expose and, and bring humiliation to Israel's enemies. And there's a couple things that are important as we look through this story. Is that Eglon, the name Eglon, means young calf. So when the narrator tells us in verse 17 that Eglon was a very fat man, okay, the, the original audience, the Israelites, they would have put these two together. It means he's a young calf, right? He's fattened. He's ripe for slaughter. Okay, I think they would have thought about this. It's funny. Yeah, we can laugh. We can smile. This is a funny story. So you have this guy named Ehud. And Ehud is from the tribe of Benjamin. It says he is a left-handed man. Now, some people believe because the, the original wording of this phrase, the left-handed man in the original language, is not the normal way that you would describe someone being left-handed. Some would argue that this just means Ehud had a great ability in his left hand. But others argue, well, no, that the original wording of the phrase is bound of right hand, meaning that Ehud very well could have been crippled in his right hand. He could have had a handicap. He could have had some sort of deformity that he wasn't able to use his right hand. And that's irony because the son of of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin means the son of right-handed. Okay? So here you have this left-handed guy, this guy who maybe can't use his right hand from the tribe of the son of right-handed. It's ironic. Who is presenting tribute to a man who has enslaved them, who means a young calf who has been fattened from the very, probably gotten fat off the tributes that the Israelites themselves provided him. So he's gotten fat off their own food. Okay, I'm glad we're smiling and nodding along at this because this is the funny story. So it says Ehud, uh, left-handed Benjamite, he sent tribute to Eglon. So Ehud was the guy that the Israelites sent to, to make this tribute to Eglon. And it says there that Ehud made a sword with two edges. And it was a cubit in length. Now a cubit is normally around 18 inches, but the word here, it could mean a short cubit. So it could be like around 10 to 12 inches Regardless, it was because he couldn't use his right hand or he had greater ability with his left hand, he was able to hide this sword on his right thigh, which if you were right-handed, you wouldn't hide your sword there. You would hide on your left side. So he was able to kind of sneak in with this concealed weapon on his right side. And he goes into Eglon and he pays this tribute. And he goes to the king and he says, I have a message for you. He says, I have a message from God for you. Now, the word message here can also mean, in the Hebrew, it can mean message, word, or thing. Again, this is funny, because Ehud is saying, I've got a secret thing for you, Eglon, right? I've got this dagger. And Eglon's thinking, oh, Ehud's got this message from God for me. I want to hear this. So Ehud goes out to the cool roof chamber, and he arose from his seat, and Ehud reaches from his right thigh, and right in the gut. And you can think about it like a cork wound, right? Just soup, just sucks right in there. The fat comes overneath. The, the sword didn't have a cross, uh, what's the word, Will? Hilt. 
didn't have a hilt, so it just it went in right, and Ehud, I could kind of imagine him going, I'm not getting that, right? <laughs> That's in there. And it says, after the blade goes in, the, he wasn't able to pull the sword out of his belly, and it says the dung came out. Now, in the original language, that means dung, <laughs> okay? This is, this is getting real. And Ehud leaves the porch, he locks the doors behind him, and he escapes. Now, here are his servants, right? They see the doors locked, they come up, and they say, all right, our Lord must be relieving himself. He must be going to the bathroom. And if, if you're a parent or you've been around young kids, okay, you know what they might have been thinking. Someone just did some business, right? We even have, we know people, you might be the guy who's always like the first one to notice, okay? Oh, someone's kid is poopy, right? You can smell it, and this is what they thought, right? He was relieving himself, right? His dung had come out, but not in the way that they had expected, right? Again, another funny line here is, verse 25, they waited till they were embarrassed, right? Like, he would like to know, how long was that, Right? <laughs> How long must uh, the servants waited for Ehud to know, man, this is getting embarrassing now, Eglon. And however long that is, they, they go into, uh, the, they open the doors and they see their Lord dead on the floor. But in the meantime, Ehud had escaped while they delayed, while they were embarrassedly, they were waiting until they were embarrassed. He escapes, he goes to the hill country of Ephraim, he sounds the trumpet, he rallies the troops, and he says, follow me, verse 28. He gives credit to the Lord, and he says, the Lord has given the enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down and they annihilated these Moabites. It says they killed about 10,000. They were all strong, able-bodied men. Now, this word 10,000 may be a figurative number, like the, the way we kind of use the wording of billion. Okay? It, it means they killed a lot of Moabites. They did damage to these Moabites. They subdued them. And then it says the, re- the land had rest for 80 years. So what we see in the story of Ehud is it's, there's satire. It's funny. I think in the story of Ehud, we see that God has a sense of humor. One commentator said it this way, if you oppress and harm God's people, you become the butt of God's jokes. I think it would have been funny for the Israelites to read this story and rejoice in the funny ways that God saved them from his people. We see from this story that God is in the business of making his people laugh. The oppression that they felt 18 years, the, the pain that they must have felt, God is, is bringing some smiling and laughtering to their faces. It's not a word, I don't think. But God is in the business of turning his people's sorrow into joy. Amen? I got a little excited here. Skipped all my notes. <clears throat> And then lastly, we have this guy named Shamgar. Not a lot is said about Shamgar. One verse. It says, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And there's three things I want to highlight from this one verse. Number one, Shamgar was most likely not an Israelite. The word Shamgar uh, is not an Israelite name. It's not common to the Israelite people. So this guy was apparently a judge who wasn't even an Israelite. That's strange. I don't think that's expected. His, he's in reference to this son of Anath. And this is interesting because Anath is not a personal name. There's no evidence in any of the historical study that this is a personal name. So in other words, Anath was not Shamgar's, Shamgar's father. 
Anath is most likely a reference here to the Canaanite goddess of war. So might not have been a God-fearer, this guy Shamgar. And the third thing that's interesting is he kills people with an ox goad. Now, how many of you know what an ox goad is? <laughs> an ox goad was a tool that was used to drive cattle. It was, it was a long wooden pole that, that could have been around eight feet. And on one end, there was a sharp point, which was made of metal. It was used to prick and prod. On the other end would be kind of like a, a paddle or a spade that was used to clear out the plow. So this was not like a, a normal weapon. This was an improvised weapon that Shamgar uses to kill 600 Philistines. And again, this might be another reference to uh, a figurative wording here, meaning a military force that's organized. But in other words, it's, he killed a lot of people with this ox goat. He could have used it, I don't know how he used it, like a bayonet or a spear, uh, skewering guys, and I don't know. But he, he must have got creative because that's impressive, 600 guys that he kills with an ox goad. And now everyone knows what an ox goat is. Feel pretty good today, right? But on first glance, when we look at these stories, we might think that they're all somehow like different, right? Othniel is completely different than Ehud. Ehud is different than Shamgar. How do these stories all connect? And there's a couple main threads that I want to trace all the way through these stories. And this is how we're going to seek to answer that first question in our outline. What does this story, when we look at the overall story of Judges 3, these, this story of three stories, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar, what does this show us about the relationship with God and his people? What do we see in this passage that God reveals about who he is and how he deals with his people? And there's two things I want to highlight. Number one, that God is so gracious with his people. He is the lavish grace of God. The abounding grace of God is, is clearly seen in Judges 3. The first evidence of this is found in Judges 3.2. Remember I said when we were going through the beginning of Judges, there was an important verse that we were going to come back to, and that is chapter 3, verse 2, where God says, I'm going to leave these nations to test you. And he says, uh, I'm going to test Israel, all those who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan, in order that the generations of people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. And first couple readings of this passage, I just read right by this. I didn't know what God meant here. Was he trying to teach his people to be aggressive? Was he trying to make his people more violent? Was he trying to ruin their innocence by showing them battle and bringing them into battle? But as you think about this and you think about all the wars up to this point where God had saved his people, the Israelites do not win wars because they have superior strength. The Israelites don't win wars through, through Joshua because they have advanced military technology. They don't win because they're superior in number. Oftentimes they're outnumbered. The Israelites win their battles in the Old Testament through, this, through these stories because the Lord Almighty, the one true God, he is the one who goes before his people and he is the one who fights on behalf of his people. He's the one who, who wins, Right? He's the one who shows himself as victorious, as more glorious. Like one battle, he says, you guys just march around the city and the band is going to get this one. We're going to send the band in. They're going to march around the city and it's just going to come tumbling down. But who is the hero of these stories? It's God. God is the one who proves himself to be victorious. God is the one who fights for his people. And what that means is when God says in order to, that they might know war, 
to teach those who had not known it before. I think this is what, what God is saying. It's a gift of grace that I want to show these people who had not witnessed with their own eyes before me win for my people. I want to show them my might, my power, my glory for these people. I want to show them how I am, have a mighty hand and I destroy their enemies. I am the one who is greater and mightier than all of them. He wants to give them an opportunity to see this firsthand. Eyewitnesses to God's glory being revealed as he wins battles for his people. Does that make sense? God is the one who is proving himself victorious. God is the one who is giving his people an opportunity to worship him, those who had not seen him firsthand. This is an act of grace. Another act of grace we see in the passage is that every time the people rebel and sin against God, the punishment that they receive is not fair compared to the reward that they receive. Did you notice that? In the story of Othniel, they are oppressed eight years, yet they have 40 years of rest. This is not fair. This is not, they're getting what they deserve. They're not. God is saving them and giving them rest far greater than the oppression that they deserve. In Ehud, they're oppressed 18 years, yet they have 80 years of rest. This is the lavish, abounding grace of God that he has for his people, that even in the midst of them leaving him, even in the midst of them turning from the one true God and breaking the covenant of prostituting themselves with the gods among the nations, that he still hears their cries, he still raises up a deliverer, and he still saves them. That's an act of grace. And I think it'd be a disservice for us to sit back from the story and say, wow, these are pretty cool. What's for lunch again? We can distance ourselves from the story so that we're not really in it. And these stories won't be that meaningful for us unless we put ourselves into the story and realize that we are the very partakers of that same grace. That God has been so gracious to us, although all the rebellion, all the ways that we have turned from God, he is so gracious to us. That should lead to worship and praise and thanksgiving and gratitude of what God has done. Secondly, the second truth we see about this story and how God's relationship is with his people is that God saves his people in unexpected ways. The stories, I think, can kind of be broken up into two halves. You have uh, Judges 3, 1 through 11, and these verses really highlight that, that it's God who saves. Okay? There's nothing really special or distinct about Othniel. There's, the story is kind of stripped down. It's really kind of straightforward, and it's almost like the reader uh, doesn't want any distractions to show us that it's God is the one who saves. Okay, there's, we don't have any kind of special characteristic about Othniel. It's very clear that God is the one who saves. But what we see in the second two stories is, is, is not only that God saves, that God saves, but how God saves. The, the, the narrator is highlighting the unexpected ways in which God saves his people. You have a left-handed man from a tribe of right-handedness who saves his people through trickery. Ehud is an unexpected savior. Then you have this guy named Shamgar, not even an Israelite. And he uses an ox goad, an improvised whip, and this is unexpected deliverance that God brings. And how these two truths come together is awesome when we think about the gospel. 
How does the grace of God, God's lavish and abounding grace on undeserving sinners, connect with this truth of God saving his people in unexpected ways? I think it wouldn't be necessarily true for us to look at these stories and say, and maybe we've even heard a sermon that's preached this way, saying, well, we see the story of Ehud. He, he kind of used his disability and his capability. He, he used his distinctiveness. So be like Ehud. Use your unique abilities, maybe even your deformities, to, for the glory of God. Or we look at Shamgar and we say, okay, use everyday objects for the glory of God. Be like Shamgar. I don't think that's what these stories are highlighting. These stories are highlighting the unexpected ways that God saves his people. Steve Matthewson says it like this. The story of Ehud, this left-handed man from a tribe known from his right-handedness, reflects how God delivers his people. The theological message is that God delivers his people from hopeless situations in surprising ways. And this comes, I think, into fruition most clearly and most ultimately when we think about Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And this is how we're going to answer the second question. How does this story connect to the Bible's larger story, our meta-narrative? How do these two truths culminate with the larger story of the Bible, which is ultimately about Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection on the cross? We see both of these. Unexpected Messiah, unexpected deliverance from this guy named Jesus, who comes from Nazareth. And Nazareth wasn't the the hip and popular town. You weren't someone if you came from Nazareth. It was a podunk town of nobodies. And Jesus was the son of a carpenter, a guy named Joseph. So when Jesus steps onto the scene and he's proclaiming the kingdom of of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, forgiveness of sins can be offered, that I've come to bring abundant life, that you can find healing to your brokenness in me. He starts identifying himself as the Messiah, the son of God. Others It's so surprising that it comes from this guy named Jesus that they mock him and they dismiss him. Guys will say, this guy says that he's come from heaven. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? I mean, we know Joseph and Mary. They're not special. Others will mock and say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus was not this expected Messiah. He was very much unexpected. And he had an unexpected message. As he identified himself as the Messiah, he said this unexpected message of, I'm going to die. I'm going to lay my life down. And that was shocking. That was unexpected for the Jews who thought that the Messiah was this military leader who came to free his people from oppression. And in Jesus' time, this was the Romans. So Jesus identifying himself as the Messiah, they thought, all right, Jesus, when are you going to pull it out, man? When are you going to pull out that sword and just wreck these Romans? Let's do it, Jesus. Come into Jerusalem. We're going to hail you as the Messiah. You're going to free us from captivity. Let's go, Jesus. Do this thing. And yet Jesus dies. He lays his life down and he dies on a cross, which was the most humiliating way that you could die. You were stripped naked. You were bound and nailed to a cross. You were placed outside of the city so that others would walk by you and you would be a testimony. You don't mess with Rome. You'd be mocked and spit on as you walked into the city. Jesus was subject to public shame on the cross. And yet again, in an unexpected way, after three days, he's he's dead, he's put in a tomb. tomb The stone is rolled away. Jesus walks out of the tomb. He appears to more than 500 people as the resurrected Messiah. I am who I say I am. 
Everything that I said about me is true. I just proved it to you. I, I, I'm resurrected from the grave. And this was unexpected. The Jews and the Israelites believed in a resurrection, but it was at the end of time. It was a future and final resurrection. The idea of a resurrection happening at the center of history was, was unexpected, was surprising. And yet here's Jesus, the Son of God being subject, entering the world in the form of a baby and dying a criminal's death on a cross. Many, even after Jesus commissioned his disciples to go and spread this message of of life and life after death and death after life and abundant grace that you can receive, many dismiss this as foolishness. Still is for many foolishness that the Son of God would die on a cross. The Apostle Paul said it like this when he wrote to the church in Corinth. The Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It says this in 1 Corinthians 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are. God saves his people in unexpected ways from hopeless situations. He will use Ehud, a left-handed guy from a right-handed tribe. He'll use Shamgar, maybe not even an Israelite, and an ox goad. And ultimately, he uses Jesus Christ to save his people. And in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, you see his abundant grace that even as he's hung on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus returns to the, the disciples and the apostles who fled from him, who abandoned him, and reaches out to them. This is the abundant grace of God. In Jesus, we see these two truths, the lavish and abounding grace of God and the unexpected way that God saves his people come most clearly and most beautifully. So from Judges 3 now, let's look at that third question. What admonition or exhortation does the story offer? So what? What's the point? What do you want me to do, Daniel? What is this story calling us to do? I think the most important message is don't listen to secret messages. Right? That's supposed to be a joke. <laughs> the message is not be like Ehud. The message is not be like Othniel. The message is not be like Shamgar. The message is since God has lavished grace on his people and since God saves his people in unexpected ways, take heart. Don't give up. Maybe you're here this morning and, and we've been seeking to make disciples and make Jesus known and, and share the gospel with those in this city and it's been discouraging. It's been hard. We feel like, I don't know why I'm here. Why am I trying this? Take heart. Don't give up. Maybe you, your family has just gone through so much sickness and it just seems to keep coming again and again. Maybe you have other struggles and sins that you haven't confessed with others or you're experiencing suffering like never before. God delights to save his people. He delights to deliver his people in unexpected ways. Let's not be like the Israelites who forget God and who he is and what he has done. Let's remember all that he has done for us. Let's take heart. Don't give up on the mission that God has given us when we feel discouraged, when we feel hopeless. We stay vigilant in prayer. We wait on the Lord. We don't give up. We take heart. We are bold in obedience. We trust that Jesus 
brought deliverance on the cross and that he will bring deliverance ultimately when he returns again on his white horse. And he puts to, to final shame all of the enemies and he, he defeats our final enemy once and for all. We take heart in the meantime while we wait. Let us strengthen our faith and cultivate patience as we think about all the ways God has been patient with us. Let's reflect upon this deeply. Let's remember and not forget all that God has done for us. Let's consider all the unexpected ways that God has shown us grace when we were not deserving of it. Let's remember all the ways that God has worked in our heart. Jesus promised the disciples, in the world, you will have trouble. Let's not be shocked when we experience trouble in this world. Jesus promises it, but he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart. Don't give up. I wanted to close my message by reading from Hebrews 13, the benediction of this book, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.